I'm Fred Eichler, and welcome to the Everything Eichler podcast, brought to you by Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's. That was me using my Wayne Carlton mouth diaphragm call, and then also using the Carlton reed call, uh, the mouth call. So I'll switch it up back and forth, oftentimes call with both, so a bull thinks there's multiple cows that he's coming into. Well, we are in the middle of archery elk season. Well, not in the middle. We're kind of at the latter part, and it has been an absolute zoo. And if my voice sounds a little crazy, it's because uh, we've been running hard the last month. I don't think I've slept over five hours a night, but this is the time of year that I absolutely love. There's tons of action. We've been getting into all kinds of animals, and I'm going to give you the update for the season. And uh, then we're going to talk about a little bit of everything when it comes to elk hunting. Uh, and then later on, I'm going to bring in uh, my guest, C.J. Davis from Montana Decoy. And we're going to have some fun chatting about not only decoys, but about uh, why they work and why they don't work and situations you want to use decoys in. But first, the update for our elk season. And this is so tough for me to even say. It has been the best season ever. It has also been the worst season ever. And I say that because we have had 15 shots at elk, 14 of those at bull elk without an animal down. So we did shoot some elk, but I'm just counting the missed shots or ones that hit a shoulder or were non-fatal. 15 shots at elk, 14 at bulls in the last 15 days. And that is just a heartbreaker. A lot of them were big herd bulls. Uh, a lot of them were just really nice bulls. Um, just It just breaks my heart for guys. So that's what I want to talk about a little bit. We're going to really delve into the to elk hunting. But first, I want to talk about a couple of my favorite hunts from this year uh, that have already happened. One was I had a buddy of mine, Larry, and Larry came out. He's from Texas, and he's been hunting with me for years. He shot multiple bulls with me. Uh, I think his best bull with me was about a 300 to 310, 7 by 7 that I called in for him. Really a good hunt. Uh, another time I had a bull come up six yards from him, and he shot that with his bow. That was a lot of fun. Not a monster bull, but a great bull, and we had a good time with it. Um, then this year, Larry came out. And he shot some bulls with some of the other guides too. But this year, Larry came out, and the way we run our outfitting business is guys come in at 1 o'clock, and they get all their gear, they take some practice shots, and then the next day their hunt starts. But, of course, Larry comes in with a bunch of his buddies. They usually have six hunters every year. They just take a camp. And I think this is the ninth year uh, he's been hunting as a client with us, and we've gotten to be good friends. So we cut up a lot, and, and you know, there's there's just a lot of just good times in camp. But Larry shows up, and I said, Larry, we got a few hours. Let's run out and just see if we can call something in or let's get a feel for what's going on. And I show him a picture on my cell phone. I'm like, check this picture out. My son took this picture of a bull off the tractor just a couple days ago, you know, trying to get him excited because, of course, you don't – you know, not everybody's like me, like, oh, here, look at this big cow. <laughs> this is a big cow elk. <laughs> Check this out. Hopefully we'll get a shot at her. I'm showing Larry this big bull, like, man, he's here in this area. Who knows? We might be able to call him in. Let's go Let's go set up. So I have a, a new guy running camera that was helping me out, super nice guy from Georgia. So I've got Tim running camera. We go out there, and it was just one of those evenings with everything you say works out, and it doesn't happen like that all the time. Majority of the time it doesn't, but this time I was like, Larry, I'm going to have you get by that cottonwood. It's in the shade. You'll have cover. You got a tree. 
you know, the wind's going from the right to the left. I think the elk, you know, because I'm going to be upwind more. I think if they even try and circle me, they're going to be right in front of you. To see the decoy, they should come right to me. And Tim's going to be behind me videoing, and it's just going to be fun. So we go out. I couple cow calls, little cow calling sequence. Wait about, I don't know, two or three minutes. Another couple cow calls. And I'm about 50 yards, maybe 60 yards from Larry. And Tim's sitting right behind me and right behind the decoy. And all of a sudden, I see this cow jump out of the brush. And, I mean, it looks like it's on top of Larry. And I found out later she came out by him about nine yards. And then I look over, and there's a spike. And he comes out of the brush. And where we were hunting, uh, a lot of Colorado is four-point minimum. In this area, it's a lot of farm country, and you can actually shoot any legal elk. You know, it can be a spike, a tube, a two, whatever. If it's an elk, you can legally harvest it with a bow. So the cool thing is, I just said cool thing again. I say that way too much. I'll try not to say that a hundred times. But this elk starts coming, and the cow and the spike see me, and they start walking directly to me. And I'm like, wow, this is kind of cool. And Tim's videoing, and he's excited because I think this is like one of the first times he's ever even seen elk. It's definitely the first time he's ever run camera for elk. And they're coming right at me. And I'm like, oh, man, that big bull may be over there. This must be kind of the edge of the herd. Let's see how many elk come out. And all of a sudden, <laughs> I'm watching this spike, and I've got the decoy up. And all of a sudden, I hear, and I'm like, he just shot the spike. This is awesome. I love it. Larry's just like me. He just whacked this spike bull. And the bull runs over, and Larry takes another shot. And the bull goes over there a little bit and just crashes. So... I'm pumped. Larry is beside himself, and I love that about him. This guy shot some big bulls and some larger bulls with us, but he shoots this bull, a spike, and his hunt hadn't even started yet, and he is just beside himself, excited, shaking the whole nine yards, but I love that about him. We go up, recover the spike. He's got great meat, but <laughs> what's interesting is he had three other tags in his pocket. He had a bear tag, a turkey tag, and an antelope tag, but the fact that he shot that spike bull on that very first evening that he arrived, we were able to go out and get him a bear, an antelope, and a turkey. So he ended up four for four on tags. Unbelievable hunt, really cool. You'll be able to see that if you want to see it on an episode of Everything Eichler. Uh, some of my other favorite hunts from this year that I guided, I had a guy come out, John, John from Boulder, Colorado. John's been hunting with me for over 20 years. He's 83 years old, came out to do a hunt, and it was one of those really cool deals. Um, at 83, he does not get along like he used to, um, but he's a, such a strong guy, and he's still a trooper, and he's got a cane, and he's just out there doing it. And what blew me away is I said, man, what's your bow set at? And he said, ah, you know, it's 50 pounds. And I'm like, really? You're 83, you're drawing a 50-pound bow? I've got a bum shoulder right now. I'm drawing 40. So at 83, he's drawing a heavier bow than me. A little bit intimidating, a little sad, but it was just such a neat time to have him there. And we spent as much time hunting as we did reminiscing about some of our past hunts over the years. But I called in for John, and it was one of those deals I didn't want him to hike a real long ways. So I cruised my truck into an area, got him out, got him set up in a comfortable millennium chair so you know he could swivel without having to stand up and turn and move the truck. I get behind him, and I start softly calling, and it's starting to get light. And I, I hear elk walking through the river. And I'm like super excited because I'm like, oh, man, this may happen. You know, here's John. We've been hunting together over 20 years. This is so neat. 83 years old. He's going to shoot a bull. And sure enough, out pops 
this six by six right in front of us. John makes a little bit of a movement. The bull gets a little nervous. Something's up. He kind of circles around us at about 24 yards, and John just doesn't really have a good shot after that. Bull ends up circling around us, wins us, and takes off. But I'm like, what an awesome deal. That's so cool. And he was super excited because it was just a great hunt for him as well. Then about, oh, I don't know, it's probably an hour later, I took a break, you know, just sitting there, not calling, being quiet, and I started another calling sequence. So I started a few more cow calls. I let out a real light, kind of a shrill bugle, two-tone bugle, and we're sitting there, and about 10 minutes later, I catch a little movement for the through the brush, and here's this spike bull, and he's coming up, and he's looking for us. Like, he knows he heard some elk, and elk are like turkeys. They're amazing. Animals can pinpoint exactly where they heard a call, and it jumps over this fence right in front of us, and it comes right past him. Now, he doesn't see that there's a good shot there, and he was trying to be a super ethical guy, which I really respect. The bull was quartered on just a little bit, and as it came past, it went broadside, but he never really felt comfortable drawn. It was a little, it was close, and he was worried he was going to get busted. So that bull went past. But that was just another hunt, and, and he left without a bull. But it was, such a, it was such a neat hunt for us together, reminiscing. So even though he didn't get a bull, it was a good time. And uh, he didn't miss a bull, so that was always that's always a plus too uh, because he wasn't uh, replaying that in his head. Uh, but one of my other favorite hunts this year and I had a I had a bunch of guys out and a bunch of people hunting with me that was it was just fun, but uh, we had Paul Ryan in camp, and uh, what a cool guy, you know, congressman, you know, he also ran for vice president with John McCain, and you know when you get a politician in a little a little bit I'm like hmm I wonder what this guy's gonna be like, man he was as he, he I don't want to offend him and say redneck but because he's not a redneck by any means but he was just you would have never known like he was just a cool guy to hang out in camp with big bow hunters been a bow hunter's whole life talked about growing up in deer camps in wisconsin and you know guide zach and and ryan had taken him out had a blast um if there was one thing um and it's not a negative it's one thing i would say about paul he was passing up multiple bulls and i was crying the guys would come in and go man we called in a four before called in a smaller five by five and it was 20 yards from him but he wanted to get a bigger one but it was his very first elk hunt. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's killing me. I want to put, I want to put meat on the table. I like elk hunting. I want to shoot an elk. And Paul's passing him left and right. Uh, it, what's great, and it ended up having a, you know, a happy ending at the end of it, is they called in, called in a bull. Paul made an absolutely great shot. He ended up taking, I think it was a four by four, but a beautiful, beautiful elk, and he was excited with it. So that was really fun. And there's a picture of that up on our on our website too. But it was neat having him in camp. And then I had to slip out. So usually I wait till all the clients are pretty well done. And this last week, almost every was done. We had a couple guys that were still hunting because it was our you know last week with clients in. And uh, I ran out. And again, Tim, who was new to the new to video, and my other cameraman that's here a lot, he was out videoing some other guys doing some stuff. And I slip out. And man bugling coming out of our alfalfa field and uh i call and boom elk shows up and i'll be the first to admit i've killed a lot of elk on public land and we still guide on public land but there is a night and day difference between hunting public land and hunting private land i was on our place where the elk were hitting the alfalfa and they crushed the alfalfa so it's important to us to try and keep them out of there some and that i look at it like 
That's the taxes the elk pay for eating so much of our profit every year. That's fine. I know they're going to eat a lot of alfalfa, but guess what, guys? There is a tax, and a couple of you are going to make it to the freezer. So that's how we work that out. But the neat thing is, is I set up, I said it again. Julie's laughing over here. Um, what did I do? I said neat that time. Yeah, I didn't say the cool thing. So they tease me about, I'm 52 and I still say dude sometimes, which that's embarrassing, but I hang around young guides all the time. I say the neat thing and do you know what I mean? So I'm working on all three of those. If you catch them, we're going to have to work out some kind of like, you know, giveaway if I say it too many times, but I'm working on it. So what's fun, there we go. I'm going to use a different analogy. What's fun is I hear these elk bugling coming out of the alfalfa field. I have to get in there real early to try and cut these elk off because it's been really hot here in Colorado this season. Uh, anybody that's been out here in Colorado this year knows it's been really hot. But these elk are drifted past. I've got a cow that sounds like she's got, you know, a, a frog in her throat. It's one that if you hear it, you just think, oh, that's got to be a hunter. It sounds that bad. I mean, she's over there like, Nyah! And I'm like, that is the hor- that is the most horrible cow call I've ever heard. But there's another cow that's obviously coming in Estra. She's and she's really, you know, whining. The bulls are cranked up and they're following her. And I'm set up by this bush and she's cutting around to the right. Now bear in mind, I'm shooting a 40-pound Point RX3 that a guy set up for me in Colorado Springs because long story, I have a tore up shoulder between hay bales. I fell off a horse this year. Well, I don't say I fell off it. The horse kind of did something, and I came off it. Let's just say that. But landed on my shoulder. That hurt. Probably a lot of years of drawing a bow, but I have a pretty bad shoulder that every once in a while acts up. Well, it acted up. Couldn't shoot my recurve like it was last year. I'm hoping to get back into it here in a month or two as I'm loosening it up. But I have a 40-pound compound. So I was set up in some pretty tight brush for a pretty close shot. Well, this cow is bringing the bull around to the right, where not only am I going to, I'm not going to be able to see her, but neither is Tim, who I've got trying to video this whole thing for an episode of Everything Eichler. So I throw a cow call, you know, using my hand to cup it, and I throw a cow call and actually turn this cow, which made all the difference in the world. They were close. I usually don't like call, calling when, when elk are really close, and we'll talk about that later. But... This cow turns, she's like, huh, what's going on? Let me check this out. When she turns, the bull turns to follow her, and he comes past me. I think it was 17 yards. Um, I shoot him. He goes, I I get a good three-quarters of my arrow in. Um, I didn't know at the time. I felt pretty confident it was a good shot, but um, my my muzzy, I was using the three-blade trocar muzzy, uh, which is the original old design, which I love, but uh, it goes through. I get both lungs and, and actually took the ventricles right off the top of the heart. Didn't hit the heart, but took the ventricles off the top. And the bull went less than 25 yards, went right toward Tim, who's running camera. But he's freaked out and doesn't want to move, and it drops right in front of him. So the bull went less than 25 yards after getting shot and was down within oh, 15 seconds, you know what I mean, off his feet. So it always amazes me how quick uh, an arrow can, can kill a bull. But one of the things that... This year, and I mentioned it earlier, I'm going to bring it back up, and I'm not picking on any of my clients, not picking on anybody, but we have had the best year as far as having so many opportunities on elk and close calls. And, and understand that those those 15 shots or the 14 shots at bulls, one was at a cow, but those 15 arrows that were let loose this year, a lot of those were like 20 yards, 25, 30 yards, super close, what I consider you know, those should be bulls on the ground. So that's why I want to talk about elk hunting, shooting, um, things to improve your odds. 
And uh, I'm certainly not, uh, like I said, I've missed, everybody misses. But I want to talk about things that can help you eliminate that a little bit. I've talked multiple times on podcasts about Chuck Adams helping me out. Excitement level is definitely one huge factor. And almost everybody that, you know, missed this year, and even the guys that made the shots, including myself, you get super excited. You, You know, you see that animal, and your adrenaline's going nuts. You're shaking. You're excited. And, you know, you in your mind, you're like, I'm going to get him. Uh, this is my chance. And maybe the first elk you've ever seen in the field. It may be your first elk hunt. And that adrenaline course through your body, you're breathing. Everybody knows that feeling. You know, your knees, your legs, everything. Breathing short. Your muscles don't feel like they're going to work. And everything that you've practiced goes out the window. Um, you know, guys aren't picking the right pin if they're shooting with a compound with pins. They're, you know, I've had guys literally lose their minds just trying to hook up their release i was next to a guy one day and i called in a bull and i keep hearing this little noise click 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 and i'm like what is he doing and and i can't believe he's not even lifting his bow and i keep hearing click 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 and i look and he's literally looking at the bull and he's trying to hook up his release while he's staring at the bull and i keep hearing the click because he keeps hitting the string but he's not getting on his loop so i literally have to put my hand on him. i'm like look at your release and hook it up so he kind of it snaps him back into okay yeah that's what i'm doing wrong and he looks down he hooks up and, and he draws so w- what happens a lot to guys is that that super adrenaline dump i mean you just get so excited um when you see an elk and chuck adams again I, i've told this story a lot but I, i'm going to repeat it because it was some of the best advice i had in calming down I had asked Chuck years ago, Chuck, I get so excited. You know, what do you, what do you do to stay calm in front of all these giant animals that you've shot world record elk and this and that giant, you know, grizzly bears, brown bears. And he said, Fred, when you see an animal, you're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to get them. I'm like, yeah, isn't that what everybody thinks? And he said, well, he said, in my mind, I think it's not going to happen. Like negative reinforcement. So, you know, that's probably, and I try and tell people that, and it's really easy to tell you this but it's easy to miss anyways but it was really good advice and the advice basically sums down to when chuck sees an animal he thinks well he's probably not going to come in range i was always thinking oh there's a big elk he's going to come in range so i would start that excitement level way earlier than i even needed to and where's chuck staying calm because in his mind he's negative reinforcing himself okay that that elk's 100 yards i doubt he's going to come this way and when the elk starts coming this way you know, our car starts coming Chuck's way, he thinks, well, he's probably not going to give me a shot. Um, he's probably going to win me. He's probably going to spot me before I draw. The whole way through, all the way through the shot, like even when he's drawn, I'm sure he's going to catch me when I'm drawn. Now, he's still making smart decisions, drawn when the eyes are partially blocked or drawn when the animal's not paying attention to him to something else. But he is negative reinforcement the whole way through. Whereas I think myself, I know I used to do this, and I think a lot of other people do, is the whole way we're so excited like we've already got that rack on the wall we're already butchering him we're already excited like oh can't wait to tell my dad this story or my son or my hunting buddies they're not going to believe this and you know you get so excited and that causes mistakes so negative reinforcement one of the things you can do to to help calm yourself down because a lot of guys that missed this year were like i just wasn't i I wasn't thinking i couldn't i couldn't think straight and you know, the guides would say, or I would say, what, which pen did you use? I have no idea. Like, I literally don't know. And, you know, that's an issue. That overexcitement is an issue. So some small things that you can do, use Chuck's trick, the negative reinforcement all the way through. The other thing is, 
I tell guys, look at as many pictures and video of elk as you can before you come out. Watch them. Learn their body language. See what it sounds like when an elk bugles. So the first time you ever see an elk in front of you isn't the first time you see an elk. I mean, watch, you know, Nat Geo stuff or whatever. You can go out there and video or, or purchase or watch online. Watch hunting videos. Watch elk in the field. Um, learn how they move. Watch how... When they get alert, when they do spook, when they do wind you, you know, when they're following a cow, uh, know what glunking is. Know, know some of the vocalizations they're going to make and watch their body language. Um, elk can react to, a, you know, to, to noise, but usually not as quickly as a whitetail. But watch them and learn them a little bit. Um, one of the other things, um, just based on the misses that we've had this year, take the time and range. Um, I love the advantage of, of shooting with a traditional bow. I think... A lot of times a traditional bow gives me an advantage in the field. Um, that's uh, that's just my honest opinion. Um, I've shot elk with both, and to me, I have way less to think about when I'm shooting uh, my recurve. I don't have to think about the range because, like throwing a ball, I'm shooting instinctive. I just look at where I want to shoot, draw back, and shoot. Um, with a compound, I have to know the exact range. I have to pick the pin. Um, you know, I'm worried about more things, I guess I would say. But if you're shooting... A recurve. Um, the biggest thing is, you know, when you sit down and set up before an elk ever shows up, all traditional guys know their comfortable range. You know, look at that bush or that tree or whatever it is out there and go, okay, if it's not inside that, I'm probably not going to be comfortable and I'm not, I'm not going to take the shot. With a compound, the biggest thing is, I think a lot of people think, man, I'm shooting compound. Ah, it's okay if I don't know the exact yardage. We have had tons of elk miss this year because guys were off on the yardage five yards five yards that's it and a lot of times especially if you're shooting 40 50 maybe even 60 yards that's enough to completely miss a bull or wound it you know what I mean? worse yet you know what i mean hit it and not recover it so use the range finder even if you risk losing the animal you know i, I had a guy just this week i think it was two days ago um super guy experienced hunter shot tons of whitetails didn't take the time to range a bull standing in the middle of a water hole in front of a muddy blind. He was in the blind. Bull was there, showed up quick right after the guys dropped him off. Literally, he's getting his gear together. Here's a bull rip, rip a huge bugle. He turns around, bull standing in the middle of the water hole. What does he do? Spins around, craziness, you know, and, and he said, man, I'm, I'm trying to get everything super fast. I'm trying to do this, trying to do that. My biggest advice for people is slow down. Everybody's heard the old adage, slow is smooth, smooth is fast you got to slow it down. Don't worry as much about it getting away as, okay, these are the things I have to do. I have to knock my arrow. I have to hook up my release. Um, you know, I need to get a range on this animal. But this guy was an experienced whitetailer, looked out there, guessed uh, the yardage, guessed it further away than it was, drew back, put his, put his pin on, and shot right over the bull. Well, the problem was he realized, of course, as soon as he shot, the bull was a lot closer than he realized. So that's a bull if he would have taken the time to range it. Odds are the bull was bugling, standing in a water hole. He probably had another minute, maybe even two minutes, to to take the range and make an accurate shot on that bull. Had another guy this year that missed one. Same exact reason. I've watched this guy shoot. He's harvested elk with us in the past, but elk came in. Um, he had a cow kind of looking at him. I think the bull had looked, but then looked away. And every time he tried to pick up his range fighter to get a range, you know, one of the elk could kind of look over at him. And I said, you did great. Not, 
spooking them, but he ended up guessing the yardage, thinking, oh, I can guess it. You know what I mean? It's it's under 50, and I think I can guess this yardage. And he guessed the yardage, and he was off and ended up just brisketing the bull, just, you know, cut him in the brisket. Whereas I know that guy, had he taken the time to range the bull, he would have made an accurate shot and harvested that bull. Um, some of the other ones are just not reading the, the language of the elk when they're coming in. Um, of course, the shoulder on an elk is the worst thing you can hit. I tell guys, hit hit, hit anything but that shoulder, and we probably got a chance. Um, a lot of people are used to hugging that shoulder on whitetails. You will not, I don't care what you're shooting, you're not going to go through the shoulder, you know what I mean, especially the leg of a, of a bull. Not going to happen. We've seen it countless, countless, countless times. Um, last year, I think we harvested 54 elk. So we see a lot every single year. And I've been doing this 27 years. Guided a lot of elk hunters. And I would say a very common mistake, and it happened multiple times this year, um, is is that front shoulder. Uh, guys are trying to hug it tight. They're thinking, big animal, man, I've got to get it right in there. And they hit that shoulder or they hit the scapula where that little blade comes up. And it's going to lock down a broadhead. Um, you're not going to seriously hurt the bull, but you are not going to recover it. I tell guys, you know, at the crease and back, you've got more room than you think on a, on a bull. Um, still getting him in the lungs, lungs, liver, or get that quartering away shot where you don't have to worry about it. But, you know, try and get the shot you want. Um, now, is it always going to work out? Heck no. Just this morning, the oldest Jeb was out. Ryan called up a bull for him. This is this morning, literally. Called up a bull for him. They've got a Montana decoy up. Bull comes on. And Jeb Drew, probably before he should have, um, he made the, the decision. And, and, you know, I'm going to respect his decision. You never know what happens. But he drew. And they said that on the video they timed him. He held his bow for three minutes. I can't hold the bow for three minutes. He's probably going to have shoulder problems now. But he held the bow three minutes. Had to let down finally. The bull never turned to give him a good shot. He let down. When he let down, the bull kind of saw something. Kind of spooked a little bit. Ryan did a great job. He stopped him with a cow call. Bull turned sideways. Jeb tried to draw again and literally couldn't draw his bow because he had just held for three minutes. He was exhausted. This is what he told me this morning. He said, I had to I had to wait a little bit. I had to wait a little bit, Pop. I was so I was so wore out. He said, and then I kind of got my strength back. I drew, put it on him, and I was shaking. And he shot, and he actually hit this bull a little back. And they're actually going to go back um, in about six, seven more hours and uh, try and recover that bull. I think there's a really good chance uh, because the bull was hitting the paunch. Uh, if they play it right, don't push them. Hopefully they'll recover that bull. Um, some of the other things is is practice shooting. Um, practice shooting, not just sitting, you know, not just standing up, you know, shooting at a target, but practice shooting like you're going to hunt. I'm a huge advocate of one arrow practice. Um, I know guys are like, man, I'm getting ready for my elk hunt. You know, Fred, I shot... 40, 40 arrows, you know, you know, this morning. I'm like, where did the first one go? I don't care where the second one or the 40th one went. It's that first arrow. When your muscles aren't warmed up, when you're not dialed in, you know, when you're not in the groove yet, that first arrow. So my best practice, I go out and shoot one arrow a day whenever I can. That's what I like. My best practice is when I can step out and shoot one arrow arrow doesn't matter if it's in the garage doesn't matter if you you know live out in a place where you can shoot 20 or 30 yards but that one arrow practice to me beats any other archery practice you can do also shoot from sitting sounds funny but shoot from sitting in different positions not just the way 
we usually practice sitting, which is sitting and you're shooting at your 90 degree angle, you know what I mean? The target's right there and everything's perfect. Practice sitting and shooting in front of you. Can you make that shot? Are you shooting out of a kind of chair that allow you to do that? Practice shooting at, you know, off your left knee. Practice shooting the course of the 90 and even practice shooting back behind you and making sure that you get that full draw if you're shooting a recurve or a long bow or self bow and make sure you're still tucking into your solid anchor point if you're shooting a compound. A lot of people practice sitting, but they don't really practice hunting situations sitting. And it seems like it always happens. You'll be sitting by a wallow or a water hole or whatever, and that shot's not the way you've replayed it in your head, and you don't react the same. You may shoot differently. So that kind of practice, muscle memory, is huge. And I'm going over this just uh, you know because we, we did have some heartbreaking uh, misses the, this year that just it, it was really tough it was tough for the guides uh, it was tough for some of the clients you know they're bummed and, and some of our guys have harvested a lot of animals with us in the past um, so again try and calm yourself down make sure you take the time to get that range or shoot within you know a range that you're comfortable with um, for guys that are out calling themselves um, I want to give a couple other tips on, on elk hunting. And I wrote a book. I think you can still get it out there because I think it's in its third printing, but it's called uh, Bow Hunting Western Big Game. Um, it doesn't matter if you buy them. It, it's a shameless book plug there. But if you want to find them, I think you can still get them on Amazon. Um, uh, it's But I wrote down a lot of specific details about calling elk and about years and years of guiding elk hunters. Um, but there's a lot of little things and me and the guides were just talking about it two nights ago when we were kind of hashing over all the misses we've had and little things that have happened. Like um, we had two guys this year shooting um, that had open on impacts or two, you know, there were more people shooting open on impacts, probably half and half as far as the numbers of fixed blades versus open on impacts. But two of the guys that were shooting open on impacts had a, a blade failure. And I won't say the name of the manufacturer, but this is something you have to watch and have to think about. Literally, one of the guys shot and one of the blades had fallen out. He shot and didn't understand what had happened. His arrow just veered off to the left, and he missed a 20-yard shot at a bull standing broadside. That's a bull that should have been down 100 times out of 100 times. I mean, that's a that's a heartbreaker for us. Um, the guy ended up catching him uh, because later on, the same thing happened. He was drawn on a deer, and uh, one of the blades popped out. So... You know, that that's one thing I really worry about and I don't like about mechanicals is that you can have mechanical failure. Um, it's really hard for a fixed blade broadhead to fail. Um, there's some companies out there that I think have it pretty well worked out, um, but there's also some companies that are that are struggling and, and some of those open on impacts I think are, are not what they need to be. So think about it a lot before you grab an open on impact. Um, make sure you know what it's going to do and make sure you're aware of the problems or issues that you can have because we had two uh, missed because of issues like that. Um, some of the other things are guys get set up poorly on the ground and get busted. Shooting at an elk that isn't alert is going to give you a huge advantage. And one thing that I've seen across 27 years of, of, of guiding is when a guy's hunting out of a tree stand, or hunting out of a ground blind, or even just sitting by a tree, by a wallow, or a trail. For every 10 elk 
that walk into bow range. And let's just, for argument's sake, say bow range is 35 to 40 yards. You know, or let's just let's call it 40 yards because to me, 40 yards is a reasonable shot on a uh, on a bull with a compound. Um, to me, 30 yards is real reasonable with a recurve, but it depends on what you're comfortable with. But let's say for every 10 elk that we have walk in range of a bow hunter if you're a traditional guy i call it 30 compound guy i call it 40 that's just my personal thing um we kill seven seven out of ten of those elk will get shot because the bull's not alert he's just doing his thing he's walking down a trail or he's heading to agriculture or he's heading to roll in a wallow um but that elk's not alert guys can draw back they can take their time they can take the shot seven out of ten get shot now for every ten bulls that we call into bow range, and that means, you know, me or one of the guides are out there blowing the cow call, bugling, whatever. We shoot one out of ten. And it's been, you know, or harvest, I should say, one out of ten. Um, because that bull's coming in alert, he's excited, and he's looking either to have sex or he's looking to fight. So either situation kind of puts you on edge and when the bulls run in either one of those situations they are on edge and they're trying to smell you they're trying to see you and they're trying to hear you and not necessarily you they could be trying to see smell or hear another elk figure out where they are if it's a cow they want to locate her as quickly as they can if it's another bull and they're coming in to fight well same thing you don't want to get punched from the side anybody that's had that happen knows that's no fun you want to see where that other bull is so you know where he's at and you can come on him um when guys are on the ground especially guys from out east um that come out to hunt out for the first time the majority of them aren't used to hunting from the ground most guys hunt whitetails from tree stands um even more of them are hunting from ground blinds now too but that's a very controlled situation when you all of a sudden take a guy that's used to hunting from a tree stand or a ground blind and say run up there 60 yards, get by that spruce tree, and I'm going to try and call this bull into you that's bugling. Or even if the guides go, okay, you stand right here, or, you know, let's set up right there. You've got so many variables to deal with. Do you have a clear shot? Um, is there an open hole in that brush? Am I silhouetted? Even if you're on the ground, you could be silhouetted if you have nothing behind you, another bush, another tree. Um, are you fully camoed? I had a guy the other day, and I literally said, I said to my son, he was, he was with us out there, and I said, look at his hands. And he looked over, and the guy had no gloves on, and he had no camel paint on his hands. And his hands were flashing around like a whitetail flag. And I'm like, man, he's going to get busted because of those hands. He's, we've got to get him to put camouflage on his hands because they're standing out. I can see him. A bull's going to see him. So, you know, I tell guys, full camo, if you're not used to hunting on the ground, even more important, full camo, but look for the little things. Don't stand by a tree in the sun, get in the shade. Try and get a spot where you've got some room behind you. Think about drawing from different angles because if you think an elk's going to come in here, he's probably going to come in over here. That's just the way it goes. Um, you know, me and the other guys try and do everything we can to steer a bull, and that's why I tell guys if you do come out and you want to hunt elk, um, usually it's best to call in tandem. Um, you know, have a buddy that you come out with and have your buddy calling for you or you call for your buddy. Now, here's the issue with that. I'll be very frank. One of my best friends that I grew up elk hunting with, um, we both wanted to hunt. We didn't want to call. 
because we were greedy. I would say, well, no, why don't you call for me? He'd say, why don't you call for me? So the way we worked it out is we would take turns on every set, and that way neither of us felt like we weren't hunting. I would call for him one set, then he would call for me on the next set, then I would call for him, then he would call for me. So by doing that, we were increasing our odds because you could help steer a bull. And when I say that, think of one guy straight in front of you 50 yards maybe 75 yards. You can't really see him or maybe he's close to where you can see him. But normally I can't see my clients when I'm calling for him. Sometimes I can, but I'd say 70% of the time I can't. I'm behind him 50 yards. I let a cow call a bull bugles. Now, again, we're straight line. A bull bugles at our 2 o'clock position or 2 o'clock position from me, from the guy in front of me. It may almost be his 2.30 or 3 o'clock position. Now, that bull's going to try and come into us. I've got a couple things to consider real quick. Which way is the wind blowing? Let's just say hypothetically the wind's blowing right in our face. I want that bull to come past my hunter that's in front of me. So I'm going to run or walk to the left and start calling. So that bull angles right in front of or right past my client or my buddy that's in front of me hunting. When you're calling by yourself, the tough thing is if you're stationary and you blow a few cow calls, that bull is going to know exactly where you're at, or that cow, because I like calling everything. They're going to come right to you. They're going to be looking right at your location. The odds of you getting busted, trying to move, trying to draw, trying to lift your bow, trying to range, they're increased exponentially. That's where little tiny things make a huge difference. So if you're going to call by yourself, I tell guys, make a few cow calls and then move up quick, 40 to 50 yards, and then set up. That elk's going to know where those calls came from, and then it's almost like you have a caller. Problem is, you can't call once you move up, and you can't fade back, because if you fade back and that bull crosses where you stood or where you walked, it's out of there. But it's a good way to kind of fool an elk into coming past you because of where you called behind you. So there's all kinds of little tiny variables that make a huge difference. Um, I encourage guys to set up, especially my whitetail guys that are, avid whitetail hunters that know how to read sign and you know know how to set up a tree stand they know how to set up a ground blind or even a brush blind you know knock a couple trees or bend a couple trees down get some old brush stack it up around set up by a tree in front of a trail guys know how to read sign that are whitetail hunters set up like that on elk hunt the way you're familiar with hunting elk you may have to sit on that trail a couple days you may have to have a couple options due to wind direction the you know, wind direction, sun direction, and things like that. But set up and wait it out. It's better to have one calm, good shot than have five opportunities on a super alert animal that you're not going to get drawn on. That's the way I look at it. Um, there's so many other, you know, little little things, and that's what me and the guides, it was kind of funny because when I was thinking about this podcast, me and the guides were sitting around, and they were talking about if he would have just done this, he would have got the bull. If he would have just done this, he would have got the bull. And I was thinking about all those tiny little things that make a huge difference. And it, it breaks my heart for guys because I get so excited hunting and I love hunting so much. I genuinely want everybody to harvest an animal. That's my goal. It's not supposed to be catch and release. You're supposed to, in, in a perfect situation, your goal is to harvest an animal. And it, it kills me when guys, those, those little tiny things don't happen. Make it simple on yourself. Uh, another thing we see a lot is guys getting confused on pins. I had a guy miss this this uh, what, about a week and a half with me, um, and it was on a deer, not an elk. But because he 
he had the wrong pin. He had one of those sliding pins. I had ranged the deer for him. The deer had moved a couple yards. I gave him the new yardage. He was super excited, drew back, and forgot to slide his little sliding pin. I hate sliding pins, by the way. You'll you'll find I'm not a big fan of those. I would prefer, um, and for me, I've set up my compound before with just one pin, especially if I know I'm going to be really stoked or really in you know, closer shots. One pin, set it for 25 yards. If it's closer, I hold a little low. It's farther, I hold a little high. But I know exactly where it's hitting at different yardages. So make things simple. Um, color coordinate, you know what I mean? Know, learn, and drill it into your mind that yellow is 20 yards and red is 50. So you can go to that really quickly uh, without having to adjust. Little things when you're excited can make a huge difference. I talked camouflage briefly. You can never go wrong with being totally camouflaged up head to toe. Don't wear white socks. I see so many guys, they'll, they'll, go, they'll, they'll kneel down and they'll be in like hiking shoes or something hunting with me and they'll kneel down and I'm seeing bright white socks because their socks, their pants have slid up and I can see the white socks on them. But, you know, your neck, your face, your hands, if you're not going to go full camo, then you had better be like a ninja when you get tucked into the brush and you're going to have a bull close. You've got to blend in with your environment. Um, wind is another one that gets guys all the time. Um, you got to watch the wind and currents in the mountains change up all the time. There's some things you can halfway rely on. And I say halfway because depending on how many little feeder canyons or little cuts uh, there are, sometimes it'll change. But as a general rule, you know, currents are going down in the mornings. Uh, as the day heats up, they start going up. Those thermals start to rise. So, you know, a lot of times I'll try and set up uh, to where I can, you know, I can hunt those thermals knowing that's going to happen. You know, in the morning I'm hunting up, uh, later in the afternoon I'm trying to hunt my way back down. And I'll even sit and have lunch or wait for those thermals to switch so I can hunt back down and have the wind in my face. Um, one of the guys, Zach, here did an amazing job with a guy the other day. They had a bull bugling. And uh, they moved off to the side, and the guy was the client was going crazy, like, "Let's go, let's try and call him." And he's like, "There's nothing we can do. We got to wait for these thermals." He waited hours. The thermal changed. The wind started blowing up the hill. They dropped in. He got close, and the bull came right into him. And unfortunately, the guy hit a twig. That's another one. We've had multiple twigs hit this year, <laughs> and you know sometimes there's nothing you can do about it. You don't see the twig, um, but know your arc on your arrow. Even a 35 or 40 yard shot, you look at it and you go, oh, that's perfect. I have a clear lane right here, but you're not looking at that little branch out there midway between you and that bull. Uh, and you clip that and the arrow's gone. I had a guy from Florida the other day, great shot, I've watched him shoot. I think he shot a turkey at 40 yards, like smoked it, but he had a beautiful bull. I think 35 yards, drew back, shot, and just couldn't believe it when his arrow ducked down and missed the bull. Well, there was one little branch. And uh, he didn't see it. So, you know, making sure you have those clear shooting lanes. Um, you know, when you're calling, a lot of people ask me about calling. And, and you know, I open this up with a little bit of a little bit of calling. Um, you don't have to sound perfect. I told you earlier about the cow just the other day when I shot my bull that sounded like somebody had kicked her in the throat. I mean, she was she sounded horrible. Turkey hunters know that, too. There's tons of turkey guys that will say, man, you don't have to sound perfect. There is a di big difference, in my opinion, between guys calling to win a calling contest and calling in the field, you know, to, to try and kill something. Some calls sound awesome. Same thing with bugling. And me and, me and Wayne Carlton, 
um, talked about this uh, with native calls. And Wayne is a great caller. He's in his 70s now, I think. But he came out last year to camp, and we were calling back and forth, and I had a blast um, because not only is Wayne a fun guy, but he's also one heck of a caller. But we were talking about how many times that we don't do a big, huge, three-tone, throaty, chuckling bugle because we want to call in every elk. I don't want to intimidate one elk. I would prefer to bring in a bull with a cow call first off. If I have an option, cow call is going to be every time because I want that bull to come in and, and, you know, I don't want him to feel threatened. I want him to come in, you know, cow call they'll rarely run from um, unless you you sound really bad. But if they do come into the cow call, they're looking to make love, not fight. That's a good thing. So the other thing I like to do if I go to a bugle is I'm usually not trying to sound like the biggest bull in the mountain. And just like turkey gobbles, elk sound totally different. I've been fooled. I've been doing a long time, and I still get fooled. I'll hear a bull, and I'll go, that has got to be. That's that monarch. That's that giant bull. And out walks this little raghorn, but just maybe he's horse, and or he's just got a beautiful bugle, and you're blown away. And then there's other times I've heard bulls that sounded shrill or just horrible, and uh, it walks out, and it's like the biggest bull I've ever seen. Um, I've got on my uh, – Julie, where are we going to put that? Julie's hanging out with me here. We're going to have C.J. Davis in a minute with Montana Decoy. But where do we put all those, uh, like the stealth cam videos and things like that? Where can they find some of that? Um, we're going to do a compilation at the end of the year. Oh, cool. At the end of the year, we're going to have a compilation, and that will be on our YouTube, um, on my YouTube page. Um, and that's a great place to go. We're going to have all kinds of bulls bugling, cows cow calling, um, this isn't this isn't people calling. It's not me calling. These are actually elk in the field standing in front of my stealth camera on video mode, and you can hear what different bulls sound like. You'll see huge bulls, 300 plus, that that just sound horrible. Ew! Just giving it something that you would think a spike would do. You'll see bulls giving really soft bugles. Me and Wayne talked about that, and we've both seen that not only on pressured bulls but on public land bulls. It's almost like somebody whispering. It's like they want. They want to let other elk know they're there, but they don't almost want to broadcast their bugle. Now, can I say that's what the elk are thinking? No, I don't know what they're thinking. But in my mind, that's what they're doing. Because there's times you can see elk, and they're just lit, giving it a real small bugle that's not carrying a long ways that you're not going to hear for a really long ways. So, you know, it's it's interesting to watch. So I hope you'll check out some of those uh, some of those stealth cam videos because I think it'll help you in the field and it'll help you become a better caller because I think one you'll realize you don't have to sound perfect when you're bugling um, two it doesn't have to be a big long three tone and a lot of times just a single or two tone you know yeah you know something short I got my where's my diaphragm I think it's in my pocket from this morning okay I'm not ready <sighs> let me see if it's here Watch video of bulls when they're chasing cows hard, when they're glunking and they're totally worked up. When they bugle, it's usually a super fast, quick bugle because they're chasing a cow. So they don't, they're not standing there. They can't take a deep breath and let out a big three-tone bugle. A lot of times when they're fully rutted up chasing cows, it'll sound like this. <laughs> Just a short, quick He's letting all the other bulls know he's there, and he's letting that cow know he is coming.
sometimes I'll set up and make a big long bugle more of a locating bugle than anything else. But the majority of the time, I'm doing shorter, maybe two-tone, kind of a whiny, more like this. So a shorter, quicker two-tone versus the big, throaty, longer three-tone bugle with chuckling at the end. These calls I'm going to make now, I'm just going to go through a sequence and uh, compare that to some of the YouTube videos that we have of actual bulls bugling on our stealth cam cameras. All right. Well, we've talked about shooting different positions. We've talked about camouflage. We've talked about wind. Um, we've talked about guys coming from out east that aren't used to hunting from the ground and some things they can do. You know, set up, hunt, hunt elk out of a tree stand. We have great success shooting elk out of tree stands, ground blinds. Hunt the way you're used to hunting. You may have more success that way. We've talked about tandem calling. That um, I think that's a huge advantage. Um, and if you're calling by yourself, call and then move up 50 yards. Um, and hopefully catch that elk coming to you. One of the things I want to talk about, too, um, we've talked about a lot of these things that will help, you know, the small things that will help you out get in the range. Um, one thing I want to talk about, and anybody that's watched everything I like the TV show or, or watched Easton bow hunting knows that I've used decoys a lot. Um, but we're going to talk about the advantages and disadvantages um, and how to use decoys and how decoys sometimes don't work and sometimes they work great. But I have a friend of mine here that's an experienced elk hunter, uh, C.J. Davis from Montana Decoy. Thank you for joining me. Hey, it's not like I had a choice. You're not going to give me any antelope steaks if I didn't come. So. That's a fact. <laughs> I really like antelope. <laughs> Thanks for coming, C.J. I you really bet. glad to be here. I really appreciate it. C.J. is is a uh, is a friend of mine, and uh, we've known each other for years. He's also a f fellow traditional uh, shooter. C.J. loves to to shoot a traditional bow, and uh, he came out here. Gosh, it's been a few years ago, um, and actually I think it was when we were working on the Eichler Elk still, mm -hmm. and uh, you came out and impressed me because I talk about the difference between public land and the difference between private land, but CJ came out on public land, used the Montana decoy, and you called a beautiful 6x6 uh, six six bull up and shot him with your recurve. It was a great experience. It was actually a five-by-five. Five. I appreciate you going oh, up instead of down. Sorry, I'm an outfitter. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> it was a great experience. And there is a world of difference between public land and, and private land and guided versus unguided. But, you know, all those tips you just went through, all that stuff applies to anybody hunting. You just – the more experience you get, the better you get, and the, the better you read the situation as well as the individual animal and know when to do what, what buttons to push, those kind of things. But I love doing it. You know, you got to have a little bit of self-depreciating humor, I think, to be a stick bow shooter. And I just love doing that. It's not that it feels macho to me or anything. It's just something about watching the arrow fly. And I love doing it by myself on public ground. That just appeals to me. So 
It was a great experience. I loved it. Learn from a guide. You gain five to ten years experience just right off the bat with one hunt. And it's hard to get that if you're an East Coast guy because we, we don't live with elk. We don't see them every day. And, you know, you can watch all the YouTube videos you want, and that's great. That's great practice. But just coming out here and doing it, that's the hardest thing. I remember somebody told me one time when you're, you know, wanting to launch a new endeavor in life to, to start a new business or – I don't know, whatever it might be you're wanting to do, that the hardest thing is to take that first step. Because if you're a hard worker and you're willing to put in the sweat equity, you'll find a way to make it work. Odds are it won't be the way you thought it was, but you'll find a way to make it work. Just taking that first step is the hard part. And I wish everybody that's a bow hunter would go elk hunting once. And if they don't like it, fine. They don't have to do it again. But I bet you 99.9 of them will be back. (laughs) Even just for the views. I mean, I I love how many people are blown away by the sunrises, the sunsets. You know what I mean? Take them up in the hills. They're looking at Aspens. You know what I mean? Here, right here where I live, I live at 7,000 feet. You know what I mean? It seems like it's a postcard every direction you look. It's just gorgeous. And how many guys will come out at night and look up and go, man, I didn't know we had that many stars. I can't see them from home. You know, things like that are all part of the experience for sure. Oh, yeah, living out living out in the country like we do, it's beautiful because you don't have the city light mm-hmm. pollution. The light and, pollution. And, yeah, that's what I call it because it was funny when Jeb went to college at CSU. Uh, the first week he was in college, I'll tell you a funny story, but I said, hey, how's it going? You know what I mean? How's, how's Fort Collins? You know, it's a lot bigger town and, you know, da-da-da. And he said, oh, it's okay. This is okay and school's going okay. He said, but you know, I can't see the stars at night. And I was like, how cool is that? That, you know what I mean? I helped raise a young man that realized that. And that he I thought, even noticed it. Right, yeah. right. That he even noticed he couldn't see the stars. I was like, that is so cool. So I thought that was that was a neat little side note. But um, I do like, I got to bring up, you said scooched. And I love that. Thank you. That's a great. <laughs> I don't even know if he's done. <laughs> he said, I scooched up a I'm little bit. I'm just trying to appeal to the southern demographic. Well, I feel like you, you, you have definitely reached got out. that covered. I'm, I'm here to help. I love it. I Represent. Love it. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Montana decoy. And I want to talk about decoys because I don't want to give anybody the false impression uh, that they work every time. Uh, you know, there's certain situations. And I want to talk about how to use a decoy to your advantage um, and where you want to use a decoy and where you don't. But first, I think everybody's heard of Montana Decoy, and I'm going to give you a shameless plug here. Um, one, because you're a friend, but two, because I believe in the product. Montana Decoys, if you haven't seen them, are an actual photo of the animal. So it's not, the, you know, for a decoy to work, I think the definition of a decoy is that, you know, it's supposed to look like something. You know, it's supposed to, you know, imitate, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, something else. What I love about Montana Decoy is it's not imitating something else. It is what it is you are looking at a picture of an actual elk on your elk decoys you're looking at a picture of a turkey on the turkey decoys you're looking at a picture of an antelope a picture of a deer it's the actual animal and i think that's why it works because the animal sees it and recognizes it as what it is i agree with you and we've always always stuck to that principle of using real animals in the photos actual wild animals in the photos and i think it makes a a heck of a difference because and we also in addition to using that real photo the way that decoy is constructed and and you know most of our decoys are a two-dimensional twist fold design but we follow the lines of that actual decoy or that actual animal's body we're not just taking the picture and then making it fit this preconceived notion we have because a lot of the body language you know leg placement ear placement all that stuff as you know it's got to be right because 
there's just so many little nuances with animals that, that we sometimes forget about or don't pick up on, but we strive to not only use an actual real photo, but to be true to the position and the attitude and, and hopefully what that animal was thinking about at that moment it was the picture was taken. And we use it that way. And we also, we also stick to being, you know, really portable because you can be lightweight but still not be portable. And we always wanted to be lightweight and portable and be true to that probably – you know, a more active hunter. There's no reason a guy can't use our decoys if he's, you know, doing the, the ground blind thing or stuff like that. But, you know, most guys that come out west, you got to cover ground just to get to where your ground blind is. And so that weight's important for that. And that's that's where it came from. You know, Jerry McPherson started it back in, I believe, 96. And it, it was purely one of those great ideas that comes from uh, a need, to recognize a need. He was hunting open country for elk, and he would get them so close, and that's his that's as good as he could do it seems like and he's getting frustrated going back and forth and he just decided he needed a lightweight elk decoy he didn't want to carry a full body mount or anything like that so he literally goes back to his shop and fabs this thing up because you know jerry i know but he's just oh, yeah. such a super we always joke and say he's that guy if we crash landed in the middle of alaska in january he would not only rebuild the plane and fly it out, but he would have found something to cook while we were waiting on him to fix the plane. <laughs> he's so he's like, he's just that guy. And uh, somehow he's got me doing all like the sales and stuff like that. And mostly what he does is hunt and play with the, you know, doing prototypes and creating new decoys. And, you know, you were talking about those pictures that we base the decoys off of. And you'd be amazed at the random stuff people call us and ask if we can build it. I mean, we've built donkeys and, you know, animals in New Zealand, tar, all kind of stuff. You like made that. me a nil guy. You made you Remember a nil guy. For, yeah, for I Texas. forgot about yes, that. Sir. Yeah, so we get a. You know, sometimes the hardest part is a guy says, "I want." I'm just making this up. You made I a go. dolphin one time too. You made a dolphin. Yeah, that's not because you hunt like a dolphin. That was so sometimes <laughs> the hardest thing is finding the actual photo of the animal in that particular pose that you know a guy wants. But nine ninety nine percent of the time we can do it and build them off of it. But again, it's built off an actual photo. So. Well, and I like that it's actual size too. Like yeah. you know, you're. I can't imagine how much work you guys go through getting the photo and then making the decoy to match and making it lightweight. Like you know, all my guides carry decoy and I. I don't care if they do or not. They're guiding. That's their job. You know, I'm like, if you want to take it, take it. If you don't, don't. The successful they, guides never stay in business long, do they? Right, it's exactly. Funny how that works. Yeah, it is. But they, uh, they all carry them, and it's funny. And I think I've told you this story. I've told this story before. Uh, when we first got a Montana decoy, I was hesitant to bring it out because you know I was like, man, I carry so much stuff. I've got the calls. I got this. I got that. And Jake, who you know, who guided for me for gosh, uh, you know, uh, over ten years, super, super guide. He had one, and the first time he pulled it out was after they spooked a bull, and he happened to have it, and they spooked a bull. It was actually right over here on the on the neighbor's place, but he spooked a bull across the meadow, and he was like, oh, you know, but he felt like the bull didn't see him, but it heard something it didn't like, and it was running across the field. He pulls out the decoy, pops it up, and is just holding in his hand and steps out to where the bull can see it, and cow calls a few times, and the bull, er, like, stops and looks back like, holy cow, man, I thought that was something unnatural. It was obviously an elk and runs back to him. Now, it would be a super cool story if I could tell you the bow hunter then whacked it and blah, 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 but that didn't happen. But it closed the distance to almost in bow range, and he was he came back and went, holy cow, man. That was incredible. So then all of a sudden I'm like, 
let me see that thing. <laughs> so, you know, that's really kind of, you know, I, I can't take credit for in my outfitting business being the first guy that was like, oh, man, I'm really going to start using, you know, like the elk decoys or the antelope decoys. When Jake used it and had great success, I was like, wow. And then since then, I've had guides, literally bulls have come up and hit them with their antlers. We had a bull try and breed the cow. And, you know, granted, now they had some conquest scent on it. So when they got up and they were careful with not, you know, getting human scent on it. But I couldn't believe the bull didn't take off until he pushed, actually pushed it with his antlers. And the decoy moved funny. (laughs) And then it spooked him. But, you know, we've had so many successful encounters. Michelle has shot elk by hiding behind the, you know what I mean, you know, hiding behind the decoy and, you know, bull, you know what I mean? Well, actually the guy, you know what I mean, was using it, saw the decoy and was like, oh, there's a, you know, there's a cow right there. Bull started raking, closed the distance, and she shot it with her bow. So I think everybody in my family, Jeb, me, Seth, you know, we've all used Montana decoy. But I also want to be honest and, and tell people, it does not work every time. And there's there's times that a decoy will spook an animal just like rattling. You know what I mean? I've rattled at a lot of bucks. I've rattled at bucks and have them. I've had whitetails run in. I've rattled at whitetails and had them go, oh, I'm out of here. So It's just another tool in your toolkit as a hunter. You know, your, your bow or your rifle, whatever you're hunting with, you've always got that. But as an elk hunter or whatever kind of hunter, you may not call. You may not use your tree stand. You may not do all these things, but you limit yourself and your success if you don't have as many tools as you can and still comfortably carry them, you know? you got to be able to get it out there if it's ever going to work. Right, if you're going to have it in the field. And there's certain situations that what I love about using the decoy and what we use it for a lot is it prevents or, or stops the majority of the time when a bull sees it, it stops them from circling downwind. Mm-hmm. When they're circling downwind, it's because they're trying to find the elk. Or it's a bull on public land because we guide on public land as well. We guide both public and private. But it's a bull on public has been called to a bunch, and he's like, no, I'm going to swing down here and check this. Is this legitimately an elk or is this a person? And boom, they see the decoy, and it's almost like you could see their whole body language changes. It's like, oh, yep, and they turn and come straight in. The guard goes down, and they come. Yes, Mm -hmm. they come straight in. So Jeb, you know, and like I said, the oldest this morning – that bull was 25 yards from his Montana decoy coming in, licking his lips, looking at that decoy like, oh, baby. <laughs> you know? He's like, I'm like, that's exactly what they're supposed to do. So we use them a lot. And what's funny is I'll use sometimes multiple decoys in a setup. Um, I think it looks odd if I'm using them on the edge of a meadow and a mountain. Um, you know, if I'm trying to hunt maybe a quarter of the way into that meadow just to have one lone cow decoy looks odd so sometimes i'll carry or my buddy will carry one i'll carry one i've set up multiple decoys many as three before in a field or a meadow to look like a herd you know i've used just the bot decoy to add some movement to it because maybe i'll put up you know the elk i worked with you guys on you know what i mean the heichler elk Mm -hmm. but then i'll take another one with the butt and i'll walk around on the edge of the trees as one's coming in it sees a little movement it just adds even more realism uh, to that setup, and I love that. So I think it's more like a confidence decoy. When I use them in a meadow a lot, or even late season, like we'll use them for rifle guys, things like that. I'll use it as a confidence decoy, just like duck decoys. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Oh, there's, you know what I mean? There's already elk out in the field. Okay, I can drop in there. It looks like it's already safe. So, but I will say, one thing guys always have to keep in mind. Um, one, of course, they work way better in the rut. 
you know what I mean? Uh, or I use multiples. So during the rut is when I have the most success with a decoy, whether it's antelope rut, elk rut, you know what I mean, whitetail mm-hmm. rut. When they're rutted up, my experience is that's when I have the most success. Well, they're looking to be more sociable then, obviously. You know, they're not trying to hide and rebuild calories and all that stuff. So uh, You call it social. Okay, nice. Is that what you call that? <laughs> During the rut, it's not just being social. It's it's well, you got to be social to get there. Well, that's a good point. That's a good. Maybe point. that's been your problem all these years. You just charge right in. You don't think about the, the plan overall. Uh, that's I agree awesome. with you. Yeah, every everything works better in the rut. Right, it does. Whether you're calling, whether you're you know what I mean, bugling or you know whitetail, whether you're rattling, whatever. So you know, I tell guys, you know, have that have that decoy with you. There'll be situations where they'll work great. Um, the times that I don't use a decoy and you may disagree with this, um, and feel free, but the times, the times I, I tell guys, I do not have success with a decoy, uh, especially for elk is if I'm set up in some dark timber or close, you know what I mean? Real close proximity. I don't like having a decoy set up on a water hole. Um, elk make noise or splashing, they're moving. Um, I've seen situations where an elk came in. And all of a sudden, that decoy is right in front of it. You know what I mean? I don't want to surprise it with the decoy because a real animal makes some noise moving around. They're breaking sticks. They're breathing. They're making little mewing noises. You know what I mean? Even deer, a lot of times, you, you, you can hear how vocal they are when you're really up close to them. And maybe maybe it's a mom still communicating with a, you know what I mean, six-month-old that she's got with her. or You know what I mean? Or she's softly bleating to the buck or whatever. But I've seen where all of a sudden they pop up on that decoy and it spooks them a little bit. So... You know, I, I like it more in a situation where I'm calling, but not at at a place where the animals are already coming. Like uh, Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Water hole is a great example because it's, it's, a, it's a tight spot. If that elk's coming to water, it's going to get there. You don't right. need to manipulate where it's going. And there's some situations, even tree stand hunting in whitetails country, if you're in a super tight funnel, you're almost doing something you don't need to, and that adds a sense of risk to it because, you know, you're going to leave sin if you walk out there. You know, you may brush a branch and not pay attention. You may have handled your decoy and it gets too close. Or like you say, you know, they pop around the bend and there's a decoy. And if it's, you know, I've heard you say this a bunch of times. That's why you like the pose of the Eichler elk because it's looking at the elk that's walking up to it. And what do other elk do when a new elk walks up? They, they look, look at, at it 90% it. of the time. So I totally agree with you. It's a... It's a tool that is very effective when you use it in the right place. And that's a broad range that you can get away with using them in for sure. But there are times when, you know, you shouldn't use one. And if you're – if I'm not calling, if I'm trying to be super stealthy, I feel like it's – you know, maybe I'm hunting public property and it has gotten pounded. I've passed more trucks on the road. I've heard more guys bugling. So I'm like trying to be that ninja hunter you mentioned earlier. You know, I just want to tuck in somewhere and let the animals do what they're going to do and not manipulate it at all. I'll right. put, I wouldn't use a decoy then either. Right. Yep. So there's there's situations that you certainly wouldn't use them. Um, I do like to give guys a heads up when you use them. Um, and you brought up a great point about scent. I want to talk more about that. But, you know, use them safely. Um, you know, I tell guys, man, I set up a decoy behind me. I've seen guys do it exactly the opposite. And I'm like, no, 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 you're not doing it right. Set it up behind you. The whole goal is, and and set it up where the animal will see it. I've seen some guys tuck tuck decoys in, and I'm like, 
they're not going to see it. Like, yeah, they'll see the hunter before they see the decoy. Right. That makes uh, no sense. <laughs> for it to work, one, they've got to see it. But two, set it up behind you because then you're going to get that perfect broadside shot as the animal's heading to the decoy. It's going to come past you and get that shot. So, I mean, the farthest I've had one is probably 100. Um, the closest I've had one was probably 10. So, you know what I mean? I, I, you know, I vary that. But you have to be super cognizant. I know you guys have warnings on the decoys and on the packages, but guys, be super cognizant. I always think safety first, just like, you know, always wearing, you know, any harnesses and tree stands. Um, you have to be super careful using a decoy, um, whether it's a turkey decoy, an antelope decoy, an elk decoy, whatever, white tail, whatever it is, uh, because it does look so real. You'll look back and go, oh, there's an elk right there, and then you'll realize it's your decoy. Well, there's certainly a chance another hunter's going to see that and think it is too. So make sure you're in a safe position. Uh, make sure you're aware of your surroundings, even more so on public land, although, you know, it's 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 the same on private. So be super safe, be cognizant, don't put yourself in a dangerous situation where if somebody thinks that's a legal animal, you're not going to be in harm's way. So yeah, if, if in doubt, don't put it out. Oh, look at that. I just made that up. That did, That's nice. Yeah. Wow. I should trademark that. You too. should. That's impressive. All right, we'll wait a little bit before we put this podcast out. Like two days. You got two days to trademark. I'm hoping I go back elk hunting as soon as this thing's over. Okay, with. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll be. Yeah, I had CJ come down from the mountain because I really wanted to talk to you a little bit about decoys. And you brought up a great point on scent. Um, you know, I am super cognizant of where I've walked. You know what I mean? Even predator hunting. I tell guys, man, when you walk out to put that call out there, you know what I mean? <laughs> you've got to shoot that coyote or that bobcat or you know what i mean before it fox before it crosses where you walked or you're going to see it kick into overdrive and disappear and it's the same thing with a decoy and it's another reason i tell guys put it behind you because if an animal is coming in reacted to that decoy before you get the shot you know i've had whitetails come into it and they're quartering to it or something you know and before i get the shot they manage to swing around you know what I mean, to where I walk to set it out. So now I've gotten to the habit of setting it behind me. So literally, as they're coming to it, I'm going to get that broadside shot. I'm also, and I don't know where you feel about this, as a trapper, I grew up trapping. So scent to me is everything. I mean, for me to get an animal to put its foot in one square inch versus the whole rest of the world, yeah, I use scent to do that. Um, so I do believe in scent. I use conquest scent, you know what I mean? On my whitetail decoys, I use it on my elk decoys. Um, you know, here in a couple of years, they'll probably have me convinced that turkey smell and I'll be <laughs> using it on a turkey decoy. You know, somebody used to make a turkey scent. No, are you kidding? Right, Is that yeah. legit? Mm-hmm. That's, le- that's an honest story. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I'm still not buying it yet, but I don't know, work on me. Maybe I will. Cause turkeys sometimes drive me crazy, but I didn't say it worked or I believed it. I just said somebody used to market it. Well, the way I heard it is CJ Davis is promoting <laughs> turkey scent. <laughs> just but, but what's, what is, what will give you an advantage though. And we've used, you know what I mean? Elk scent, like I said, and, and you know, on both our, on our elk decoys, but also whitetail center, whitetail decoys, it will hold them there for that one second sometimes means the world. Um, same with predator hunting. You know, you give it that one to three seconds sometimes, it'll give it the world. You guys have a pretty sweet coyote decoy out now for predator hunters. Uh, that's We're awesome. actually about to reinvent that thing. Um, oh, you're so changing probably, that up? Yeah, probably by uh, winter, or, uh, spring or summer of fall of, uh, excuse me. Come on. 
I get it right, spring or summer of 2020, we should have a new one out. It'll, awesome. Uh, be a little bit better picture, a little bit better pose, have a little more motion to it, um, non-electronic motion, but a little bit of motion to Ooh, it. Too, like so. a tail or something. Yeah. That would be awesome. You, I, you mentioned something a while ago that kind of struck me. You're talking about using scent, and we're talking about using decoys. They both have the same end goal, and that's to put an animal where you can get a shot at it. One's using visual cues, one's using scent cues. So they're all supposed to be doing sort of the same thing. So combining those two makes a lot of sense. If you can have, oh, I see. See what I did there? That was pretty quick. (laughs) But I hear guys. That's why calling, the the combination of calling, like you say, you got calling affecting, you know, they're hearing it. You got the decoy, their eyes, they're seeing it. You got the scent, they're smelling it. You know, you're, you're getting them all covered. We do a lot of trade shows and talk to a lot of guys, you know, that it still surprises me, and I guess everything does. You know, it's amazing to me how many buddies I have that bow hunt compounds that don't use range finders. But we talk to a lot of people, and they'll say, I tried your decoy, but that deer didn't walk right up to it. He got to about 15 yards from it. And it's usually a whitetail guy, and I'm thinking, if you got 15 yards from the decoy and you didn't have a shot, you might need to rethink where you're putting the decoy up because my goal is not to – sometimes it happens, just like you're talking about with your guys, but – if the deer walks up and puts its nose to the decoy and that was the only shot I was going to get, I didn't set up quite right in my mind. Now, the scent, you know, you could put the scent on the decoy depending on where you're setting it with the wind blowing because you got to be careful that the, the elk doesn't get a snoot full of Fred and the decoy. You know, right. you're, you're thinking through all that stuff, I know. But a lot of guys, you got to just think about the realistic approach positions from those animals where they're coming in what are they going to hit first what scent stream and where are they going to see the decoy from and and it's all guesswork if it were a sure thing it wouldn't be any fun anyway so (laughs) you're just picking what's the most likely scenario to develop and then you're maximizing your your chances by using scent by using calls by using all these things but you know I, i don't think you won't unless you're trapping you know the the scent it's not on the trap, is it? Right. Yeah. It's so the, your it's trap to, right. is your setup with it's, a decoy. That's a good analogy. Impressive. Yes. No. That, and you're right. And I agree with you 100. Like, did the, you just say impressive? Yes. Can I get a copy of this, Julie? Yeah, I'm that, gonna need that. <laughs> it is. No, that was that's a that, that was a great analogy, and you didn't comment on my big word analogy. I try to use one every podcast. Um, that was my new one. <laughs> Stop laughing. That's a big word to me, but. Uh, it is key where you set the decoy up and that's where setting it up behind those guys like for a whitetail guy to say it got 15 yards from the decoy or got up to the decoy and i get a shot you're right that's not setting it up right and that's the key with the elk you know i told guys set it up to where i can see it it's two-dimensional you know figure out where you want that elk placed and place the decoy accordingly know that they're going to probably try and circle downwind mm-hmm. set it up to where as they're making that trek around the, the decoys broadside to them they'll see it and they come into it so that's key the other thing is you know when you're when you're hunting i always try and pick those spots and and yeah it doesn't always work out that way but you always have those lanes and like you said it's it's a more of a you know best guess but you know haven't done it for as long as as i have and you've got a little gray in your beard too i see um (laughs) you know you, you you like to think that you can kind of pick those you know what i mean okay if i was an elk or if i was a deer i'm probably gonna approach from from this direction so I think those things give you a, give you a pretty good hint. Um, you're going to go back out later on, do some elk hunting this afternoon, aren't you? Well, that's the plan, yeah. They're being a little tight-lipped right now, but, you know, they just go through those phases, and you have to do the other stuff sometimes, you know, be patient, sit on those wallows when they're not talking or, you know, find what the trail you think they're walking down. So. Oh, yeah, and this I, hot weather, man, it's it's been an incredible year. Like I said, my biggest – 
my biggest crushing blow has been the fact that we've had so many. I really, I think we're like 90, 95% on shots at bowls. And you know what I mean? And unfortunately, uh, don't have a lot on the ground. But guys are going back with some great stories. And hopefully, they, they, you know, they, they learn from, uh, you know, from some of those things. And sometimes there's nothing you can do. It just happens, right? Yeah, it's just hunting. But that's the beautiful thing about bow hunting. And you mentioned earlier, and I thought it was really cool. You were looking at some of my arrowheads on the wall. This whole area um, is unique in the fact that there is a ton of Native American history around here and i know you get i would say it's not just native american it's like paleo indian because right i drove out here and i go through this little town Folsom, new mexico and that's like a historical hot spot because that's where and you correct me where i'm wrong because i'm going to be wrong that's where they found the first Folsom point that was and here's a big word i can't use correctly but in situ in something that means it was in with the carcass of a bison so it sort of proved the point and this is probably a long, you know, even before you and I were born, a long time ago, <laughs> when they proved that there were humans here and we were hunting those bison at that yeah. time. And, and it was an extinct, it's, it's an extinct species of bison that yeah. was actually much larger. Much larger, yeah. Than the, than the actual, I don't know if you knew I knew that. So. Uh, that's impressive. Too. Yeah, I know. So I'll give you, give you kudos back. But there was a, apparently a, an entirely different menagerie of animals menagerie. that, that okay. inhabited this area at that time. And there was always this confusion as... You one side argued that you know we overhunted them and put them in extinction, and one side argued that you know humans weren't even here then. And as usually the case, those first arguments, as as we flesh out through finding more archaeological sites and things like that, it just kind of it's a little bit uh, different than what you originally thought. But that Folsom Point, to me, I think it was a cowboy that found it in a wash had had a really big rainstorm right through there, and and he was out checking fence or looking for cows and found it told it to another guy he knew that was kind of a little amateur archaeologist and you know then it nobody did anything with it for a number of years and i think the cowboy actually passed away and then finally somebody came out there from a a museum or university it's kind of realized hey that those are bison bones but they're a little different or something and then started doing some digging and found that point and it kind of and then there's the other one and i may get this wrong but clovis predates Folsom or is clovis after Folsom? i can't remember that i can't remember either but it's like, and the design is in, in, you know, you see people with airhead collections and there's all these different types and they've kind of branched away from those two key components. And they used to have a flute in them that they thought might be for putting it onto the shaft instead of the edges or sides that we're probably more used to seeing more, more, I don't know if modern is the right word, but more modern Native yeah, American stuff. So it's... It's all tremendously interesting, and it never dawned on me as many times as I've come out this way. I've flown most of them, but driving them, too, and I drove through that town, and I was like, you know what? There's a little museum here. I'm going to this when I get back. This is cool. On the way back home, I'm going to time it to, to visit in there. So it's just a neat neat thing, and you've also got a pretty cool-looking uh, saber-toothed tiger. What's the story on that it's, skull? Isn't that neat? That's that one is of cool. the ones that was found in, like, the You killed that pits. where? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I wish. Um, it's in my big... I have a huge skull collection, you know, animals that I've harvested and also, you know, to be skulls that I've collected because I'm, I'm always fascinated looking at them. You know what I mean? Like, you know, a hyena versus a lion or, you know what I mean? A mountain lion versus a leopard or, you know what I mean? Different, mm-hmm. different species. So I, I enjoy looking at skulls. I think they're interesting and I think we can learn a lot about them, but, uh, I never, I didn't have a saber tooth and I really wanted one bad. And of course it's a gajillion dollars. I think if you ever could buy one. Um, but I actually got a cast off one 
that was found in the borrow pits in California. So it's fascinating to me to look at like the sagittal crest and look at the size of those teeth compared to, oh, yes, I knew that word. Sagittal Are you impressed? Crest. Wow. Yeah. Yep. So, but to, to look at the size of the teeth in comparison and know that, you know, really those were, you know what I mean? It, for, for going through vertebrae, you know what I mean? And, and, and dropping the animal, you know, so it's just really fascinating to me, stuff like that. So it seems like I read somewhere too, that the way, you know, you've got canines and cats and cats are more, like that saber-toothed tiger, those things are tremendously long and awesome looking, but that by being long, they could break easily. So that cat had to have uh, an articulation in his his legs and paws where when he bit into that prey, he could hang on to it. You know, he wasn't hamstringing it. Right. That's not designed to hamstring and bring no. it down. No, no, no. So he had to be able to b- make that bite and not lose his knife yep. at the same time. It's just fascinating how, you know, they just made those adaptations and what worked and what didn't. Yeah. You know, and why is... Where'd that go? We didn't overhunt those. <laughs> well, I'm here with C.J. Davis from Montana Decoy. Um, we've talked about some different tips on elk hunting. C.J., is there anything you want to add before we before we sign off and you go back up to the mountain and my wall tent and see if you can get an elk and before the, the guys go out this evening and see if they can recover my son's bull? You know, I just wanted to, to thank you for all you've done for the company and being a part of not just using the product and talking about it, but actually as a sounding board. I mean, how many decoys in years past have you and I talked about that doesn't have your name on it, but yet you've contributed information to it? And and a really cool thing is, you know, our consumer is so smart this day and age and can find out so much information that our relationship is not just us paying you to use a decoy. You were using the decoys before you and I ever knew each other. So you came to the table with information that's valuable to a manufacturer and we're a small company, you know, during our busiest shipping times, where there's only probably seven or eight of us tops. So you bring information to the table that's legit. And in your situation, you get enough elk experience from yourself and your guides and operation in a year that, you know, it would take an average guy, what, 15, 20 years maybe to build that if you ever could. So, I just want people to understand that it, it's, it really is a, a scenario where we try to get the best information we can from the guys that use the decoys in the field the most. We are a small company. We can't turn on a dime, and, and but we do try to really excel at customer service. And we'll always be true to that Montana vision that Jerry created years ago of making them lightweight, portable, and super realistic. And, you know, you're playing with a new elk right now that I sent you. This going to be the lightest elk we've ever done. It's I'm excited got, about that, too. It's got some cool little tricks to it that will be interesting to see how they flesh out. So, again, we're just – What are you know, calling that? Man, that thing's so new, I don't even have a name for it yet. <laughs> That's awesome. So it's a new one. Can I tell people what it is, basically? Yeah, no? sure. Why not? Yeah. It's, it's, it, guys, it's, a, it's the butt of an elk, basically. And that's one of the ones I was talking about, and, and I didn't mean to let a cat out of the bag when I was t- telling you I was using multiple decoys just the other day. But it looks like a cow elk walking away. And uh, what's awesome about that, or feeding, you know what I mean? You can set mm-hmm. it up in a situation where it looks like it's feeding, but that's one that for the super lightweight, the guy that's bombing back in there, you know, four to six miles, that would be a great option. Now, I love using it in tandem with the other elk. You know, to be, you know, Add I, that motion to it, oh, like you said. exactly. Yeah. I, I move a little bit with that one. Or as I'm calling, I may move a little bit in the bushes or move back and forth. And I love it for that because that's really awesome. And, you know, guys, again, what's fun about decoys, and you and me have discussed that, I 
I won't say we got in an argument. We had a fun discussion <laughs> about uh, you know uh, uh, you know an elk that was down feeding. You know what I mean? And and I think in certain situations feeding decoys are are handy. But if I'm only going with one decoy, you know what I mean? Uh, you know my my thing was I want an alert. And and we had a discussion about that. And I was like, man, look at any. And you knew this as an avid hunter. But my my whole point in conversation with you was, you know, when you watch a deer, an elk, an antelope, any other species, a horse, doesn't matter. Watch another animal come into view and it lifts its head up and it looks at it. So that's why I'm really a huge fan of, you know what I mean, decoys that are up, you know what I mean, in in an alert position or looking at the animal because I think that's very realistic. And one of the things I love about this one is if it's not walking or alert and looking toward it, it's walking away from it. Mm-hmm. And that to me is also, a, a, this is going to sound weird, but an attractive uh, a, a attractive position uh, during the rut for a whitetail or for, you know, for an elk in this situation because, well, okay, that, 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 you know what I'm trying to say, CJ? I'm letting you dig your own stuff. All right, all well, it's walking away. It's, you know, she's not looking. Like yeah. that, that was, I always had my best luck. When, when when girls weren't looking and I was able to just, you know, sneak up and, and maybe, you know what I mean, hey, you know, my name's Fred, uh, you know, uh, do you like hunting or fishing? You know, that was that was my thing. So if they, they looked at me. stalking in some states. Well, no, they? I'm just saying if they looked at me, oh, it was game okay, over. Okay. If I could sneak up and they didn't know I was there, increased my odds. And we've also got to talk about the Eichler elk. I think you've got some ideas and some things that we're going to work on to make that one a little better in the near future too. So yeah. that's on the drawing room table too. Yeah, that's exciting. I like that you guys are are constantly innovating and changing and tweaking some things. But like this new one, butt elk? I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. You want to call it the butt? We'll, we'll think about that. I don't think you're going to take my advice. Probably not. No. Julie's right. shaking her head. No yeah, either, it's so. it's just a butt, though. It's, it's it, That's what it is. And we've had one of those decoys before, but right. it still suffered from a lot of the but it, the weight and issues like that. But the way you guys have the have this one rigged up with the stake, at least the prototype I have, and that's what I've always loved about you guys. I got to throw this in before we sign off. You guys have prototypes in the field before you ever put anything out, and I absolutely think that is key. I wish I wish a truck companies and a bunch of other people would <laughs> would follow suit. But it just you ever seen a product that you go, man, did anybody test this? But you know, you guys have have tested products, and I've you know, tested some of your products. That some was, that don't go to market. Oh, you yeah. Know, some you've of had, us say, eh. Yep, and you, then we've had some that I love that we can't get, you know, just the way they're constructed and stuff like that. We can't get the retail price where it would appeal to enough people to make it worthwhile. So, we, you know, it's so a good product, but we can't bring it to market. Sometimes we have an idea that doesn't work out like we think, so it doesn't go to market either. Yeah, it's been, it's been fun, though, watching you guys not only evolve, but also take that serious enough because you guys are all avid hunters where you want to test them in the field first. Listen, CJ, thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on. And, guys, I hope between me and CJ, I hope, CJ, I hope some of the tips – hush, I'm tired. <laughs> I hope some of the tips and things that we threw out there will help you out when you go elk hunting. And like CJ said, if you've never elk hunted, give it a whirl. And if you go, try and eliminate as many of the small variables that cause people to miss as you can. And good luck.